Hey folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on Fat Burning Man, where we talk about real food and real results. Now, we all know that junk food is bad for us, but have you ever thought about why? Science demonstrates this startling fact. The food you choose to eat now has massive implications on the health of your children. Our diet doesn't just affect the expression of your genes, but also the genes that you pass on to your children and future generations. As a result, many of us are getting old too soon and settling for far less energy, health, and vitality than we all deserve. Today, you'll learn how to tweak your lifestyle and habits to make your wild genes thrive by harnessing the power of epigenetics. Before we get to the show, there's this. People are spending literally billions of dollars this time of year on shiny objects. But sooner or later, we all realize that stuff doesn't make us happy. Experiencing vibrant health does. So instead of buying more stuff this year, what if you invest in your own health? We've slashed the prices for the holidays to help you do just that. Check out our best-selling e-cookbook, The Fat-Burning Chef, today to get over 200-plus delicious fat-burning muscle-feeding recipes from the best cooks in paleo and beyond. As a limited-time bonus, you'll even get our Wild Holiday Feasts e-cookbook, which is a $27 value, completely for free. Adina says, mouth-watering meals in 20 minutes? I'm in. Janet says, love the idea of having meals in minutes. With my busy schedule, making time to cook from scratch can be difficult, so it's nice to have recipes that don't require me to spend hours in the kitchen. If you're looking for recipes that you can make quickly, easily, and on a budget, check out Fat Burning Chef at fatburningchef.com. But it's not just about the recipes. We also really believe in what we do, and we want to change the world with real food. So when you buy the Fat Burning Chef program, you get a free copy to give as a gift to share with family or friends. So help us spread this message of health and share it with the people you care about completely for free. All you have to do to get your discount and bonuses is go to fatburningchef.com. And if you just want to dip your toes into all of this, I have a ton of free content, including uh write-ups of every single podcast that we've been doing for the past year or so at fatburningman.com. When you sign up for my newsletter, you get a ton of free goodies, a free seven-day meal plan, and a quick start guide. So that's all at fatburningman.com. But on today's show, it's a special throwback episode with Gray Graham, author of Pottinger's Prophecy and expert in epigenetics. You're about to learn why cats don't eat margarine, how you can reprogram your genetic expression to live longer, why being 100% paleo or 100% vegan might actually be hurting you, what nutrition has to do with sexual dysfunction, and much more. All right, let's go hang out with Gray. All right, folks, today we're here with Gray Graham, and Gray is the lead author of the book Pottinger's Prophecy, which looks at the role that food may play in resetting our genes. How's it going, Gray? It's going very good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited that you're here. This is a topic that a lot of people are starting to chatter about epigenetics and uh, and Pottinger's Prophecy and all of that, but I think there aren't a whole lot of us out there who really understand what that means. So can you give us just a quick primer about what this new term epigenetics is all about? Yeah, I think the the concept has been around for a while, but it wasn't really accepted by conventional genetics. I, I was introduced to it when I got into the nutritional business about 21 years ago. My mentor, Dr. Bob Curry, one of his first assignments was for me to go to the Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation mm-hmm. and read two books that profoundly changed my thinking on nutrition forever. 
The first was uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston Price, mm -hmm. which is a book that everybody should read, but every healthcare practitioner should be mandatory. Right. And the second one was a book about Dr. Francis Pottinger, who was a medical doctor, and he, he did this 10-year this study with cats. And he was the first person to prove that in cats at least, you know, that what you eat not only affects your health, but affects the health of your offspring and their offspring and their offspring. And uh, I mean, that's kind of the beginning of the story for me, because in, in my previous life, I had been involved in work that had me in schools. I was in the map business. And so I was in a lot of schools over a long period of time and, and actually saw kind of a change in the look of the children. Mm. You go into a middle school when I was in middle school, you know, which was in the uh, 60s, you know, children looked a certain way. And let's face it, you know, middle school junior high school kids are always a kind of a motley looking crew. Sure. But, you know, 15 years later, when I'm in the schools, it's another generation. They look decidedly different. And 15 years later, they look different again. Yeah. And even then I thought, you gosh, people, the look of people is kind of changing. But it, I didn't really put it together till I read Pottinger's book because Pottinger actually did the study and showed, you know, with his cat studies, he did a lot of different ways. But basically the, the premise was he would take one group of cats and he would feed them only what he considered a whole raw natural diet of cats. It consisted of cod liver oil, raw meat and raw milk. And then he varied the meat and the milk parts in a number of different studies. But what he found was oh, the results were always the same mm -hmm. is that when you fed the cats an improper diet, a lot of people, I think, put a little overemphasis on the raw, but if you really say processed, the more he would, for example, in his most famous study, the more processed the milk was, the more degenerated the cats became and their kittens became and, and their kittens and their kittens to, really for three generations. So when I looked around, when I, when I read the book and then I looked around kind of at the world, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're a bunch of Pottinger's people, you know, yeah. because we're degenerating as a race in America faster than anybody because we have the most highly processed uh, diet. So in the cats, the things that happened, they changed structurally, their faces became more narrow and had crowded teeth. So you see that, you know, I mean, gosh, when I was in, in school, you know, maybe one kid in 20 would have braces. But today, you know, I know when my son was going at that same age, every single child in his school had braces, you know, yeah. so that, that's the, the effect of several generations of processed foods. And then the other thing that he found was there was sexual dysfunction that, um, the, that the cats on the, on the processed foods, they either lost interest in sex or their sexual behavior became um, abnormal for cats mm -hmm. or... One of the most profound things I think that has so much relevance today is the cats became desocialized. They either became reclusive or aggressive, sometimes both. You know, they'd be mm -hmm. very reclusive. Then when they would socialize, they'd be very aggressive. So when you look at all these horrible tragedies that are happening from Columbine on, you know, and they, when they define those children, it's almost always the same. They were socially maladapted. They'd become reclusive. Mm -hmm. And then they turned horribly violent. And um, I remember when, when Columbine happened, it was so shocking for everybody. And they had days and days of, you know, talking heads, you know, talking about, oh, it's the video games, it's bad parenting. And, you know, really nobody even talked about the food that yeah. our children eat or that their children ate. There was only like one clue. They were interviewing the mother of one of the friends of those uh, two young men. And she said, she said they were just like all the other kids, you know, she said they'd come over here and I'd give them soda pop and chips and they'd watch, uh, you know, movies and stuff like that. It's perfectly normal, you know, but the, the, so the key is the soda pops and chip, you know, that's not the type of nutrients that will support good mental health yeah. and, and particularly from a generational perspective. So, 
Right. And there, there's so much to talk about here, but this is kind of a new concept for a lot of people, I think, especially uh, kind of dipping their toes into this whole, even thinking about diet or, or how diet could relate to other effects in life. And not yeah. only that, but the lives of people in your progeny. Unborn children and grandchildren. So let me make epigenetics as simple, the concept as simple as I can, because see, when Pottinger did his work, it was completely rejected by science because mm -hmm. at that time, genetics said you only pass down characteristics through your genes and that the genes changed very, very slowly over long periods of times as they adapted, you know, kind of the, the Darwin effect of evolution. Yeah. And so this idea that, that, you know, that you could pass on nutritional deficiencies was completely unacceptable to science. So mm -hmm. they just completely rejected it. But um, and it wasn't so much later. It was about the time that Pottinger was doing his work that the term epigenetics was coined, but it was practically unknown. And so the, the big things that happened is that um, there was a study in Overkalix, Sweden, an epidemiologic study that, that actually showed the same phenomenon in humans. But basically, what epigenetics means is above the genes. So we, we do know that over long periods of times, we adapt based on our environment and our diet. And you can see that, you know, um, around the world, you know, that, you know, the diet that, that say the Inuit people have adapted to and the diet that, um, you know, Great Barrier Reef Islands have adapted to is very different. And yet they're both very, very healthy with these kind of, uh, uh, you know, significantly different diets in terms of everything, in terms of fat, in terms of content, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, a glycemic index and everything. But those changes do happen slowly over many, many, many generations. So that's our, our genetic destiny, but our epigenetics change very quickly. I mean, you can go out and exercise and you will change the expression of your genes. If you the meal that you eat will change the expression of your genes. So, so many people, you know, use their genes as a cop out. They go, well, you know, I'm diabetic, but my, you know, dad was diabetic. My grandfather was diabetic. So it was my genetic destiny, mm -hmm. but that's, that's really simply not true you know, is that because if you go back two or three more generations, nobody was diabetic because yeah. they didn't have access to the foods that cause diabetes, the sugars and the, and the highly refined, refined starches. So what we know now is that only scientists argue about this. So we'll take the range only between two and 10% of the diseases that plague us today are genetic. And so that means that 90 to 98% are actually epigenetic. Mm. So it does have to do with your genes, but it has to do with how your genes are expressed. Yeah. So what we know now is that genes can be turned on or off. Good genes can be turned off and bad genes can be turned on based on what we do in our environment. So mm -hmm. primarily our food, but also the other powerful factors are uh, exercise and um toxins you know so yeah. we we know now that there's so many with all the herbicides and pesticides and industrial pollution and stuff that those things also have a powerful ability to um switch genes on and off you yeah know? so so we're, in some ways you know it's it's a powerful message because it puts us back in control you know we're not victims of our genes you know we we have control of them but we have to take back that control yeah and it's so neat because it, it's a uh... It's an interesting message, this whole epigenetics thing, or what we can take away from it. Because on one hand, we're learning that <laughs> what we do, like you said, every meal that we eat, every bit of exercise that we do, and in fact, every thought that we have can have an effect right. on 
which genes we're actually expressing, which is really empowering. But at the same time, you have the immediacy of saying, if you don't do this, then your children children will suffer. Yeah. And I think that's very clear now. And uh, so if you like, I'll talk a little bit about that over Calix study, because I think it's really gave us another profound lesson. I mean, it basically mm -hmm. just showed that the phenomena that Pottinger showed in the cats um, happened in people. And so what they did, there was a Swedish um, epidemiologist, and he got connected with a, a British medical geneticist. And they, they had this trove of data from a a little town in the far north of Sweden called Overkalix. And I don't pronounce that right, so I, my apologies to all our sweet. <laughs> I'm not going to correct you. I have no Swedish, idea. <laughs> yeah, Swedish speakers out there. <laughs> Overkalix or something like that. Anyway, I'm not going to try and uh, uh, pretend I have a good Swedish pronunciation. <laughs> You'll but just anyway, get lampooned this, in the comments later. No big deal. There we go. I'm sorry. <laughs> Advance apologies. So um, what they did is that they found this town that kept immaculate records. And the other characteristic of this town was it was very isolated from the rest of the world in the winter. So in the summertime, they had transportation primarily by the rivers and there was some roads. But as soon as the winter set in, the rivers froze over and the roads were closed down. So the only food they had was the food that they produced in their community. And so they kept these meticulous records about their crops and about the failure and success of their crops. So they could tell when they had abundance or scarcity of mm -hmm. these particular nutrients. And then um, the other thing they kept meticulous records on were, were their birth and death rates. So they, they meticulously combed through all of this data. And what they found is that there's a time of our life when our epigenetics, when our genetics are being set based on our diet, it's a time of life called the slow growth period. So for girls, that's between the ages of eight and 11 and for boys between the ages of nine and 12. So it's that time just before puberty mm -hmm. and what a child eats then will what they eat at any time in their life will, of course, affect their health and the health of their progeny to some degree. But what, what they eat during that very critical time has a profound effect. So by following these records, they found that when the crops failed – so here the original hypothesis, when people were didn't have enough food, when the crops failed, mm -hmm. then the children would be undernourished and that their progeny would be less healthy. But what they actually found was the opposite. When the crops failed and what they grew pri primarily was um, – grains and potatoes mm -hmm. and but when the grain and potato crops failed the children that came of age their slow growth period during that age their children their grandchildren so that would be the great-grandchildren of the parents at that time lived up to 30 years longer than the children who came of age when the crops were abundant wow so that's a huge, and what did they die from? You know, they died in times of abundance. Their, their grandchildren had a higher propensity towards obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. So does that sound, does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah. Now, I had a disagreement with my co-authors. They, they came from, I'm kind of from the Price Pottinger, you know, mm -hmm. Weston A. Price kind of, you know, mindset. And their previous background was uh, as a scientist science uh, uh, research director for Dean Ornish and his studies. And mm -hmm. so they had a very, they had come from a low fat, you know, a vegetarian type of perspective. And so here's our disagreement. So they said, well, here, here's what you can see is that when people don't eat much, they live longer. Yeah. And I'm going, well, you know, there's really nothing in those records that said people didn't eat as much. What it said is that the potato and the grain crops failed. Now, the other things that they ate were pork and salmon. And of course, you know, in the summertime, of course, they had access to some greens and some berries, but that mm -hmm. was very seasonal because this was so far north. Yeah. So I just 
I'm thinking about logically. Now, this isn't this isn't what the scientists have said, but let me ask you this, Abel: If you were growing uh, potatoes and grains and raising pigs and catching salmon, and the potato and grain crops failed, what would you be eating? <laughs> Bacon. It sounds Bacon, like. <laughs> right. and, and salmon. You know, I mean, the first thing they do if they didn't have the feed to sustain them through the winter, they would slaughter the pigs and they would preserve them. Fortunately, mm-hmm. you know, both sa- salmon and pigs, you know, can be um, uh, preserved, you know, when appropriately cured for significant periods of time. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't think I'm, – I'm certainly not going to sit here and say definitively – that it was the carbs that was, um, you know, making this huge effect. But I think if you look at a lot of the data that we have today, and if you look at the significant changes away from uh, protein and healthy fats, you know, since the 70s, and um, then you look at the results of the children today, I mean, my gosh, you know, the Center for Disease Control said almost 15 years ago now that children born after the year 2000, that 30 Five percent of them would become diabetic in their lifetime, which is an amazing figure if you think about it. And it looks now, after fifteen more years, it looks like it's going to be even worse. You know, yeah. United Healthcare did a study, and they said that by two thousand and fifty, that fifty percent of the people in America will be diabetic or pre-diabetic. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know what to say except that we're in a lot of trouble, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we have to change things. So getting back to Pottinger, so Pottinger had two messages. So when you, when you gave these cats inappropriate diets, they degenerated over three generations. But, but actually the way the study went is that each generation, you know, he would measure their physical parameters of their health. And after they died, he would autopsy them and he would take a look at their internal organs and things. But that experiment only lasted three years because the, the, the cats that were give, given the processed milk products, mm-hmm. um, they, after the third generation, they couldn't reproduce anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and so, I mean, is that, is that a problem we see today, you know, or I think some, the figure is something like 16 or 18 percent of Americans can't conceive and bear children without medical intervention. Right. But in the cats, it was, it was they either uh, lost sexual interest or they had uh, sexual activity but they didn't conceive or they conceived, the kittens were born stillborn. And so what, what Pottinger did at that point, he said, well, I guess that's the end of the road you know, for this experiment. But he got to thinking to himself, is could, could you, by the same process, could you regenerate the cats? So what he did is he, he started giving the, all the cats the control cat diet and sure enough, just by making that change, the cats that couldn't conceive and couldn't bear offspring were able to conceive and bear offspring. <laughs> but the offspring weren't as healthy as the yeah. control kittens. But he f- continued to feed them a whole food diet and they, their kittens were healthier and their kittens were healthier. And so here's the lesson is that we can turn this thing around. It's a process. But it, it took three generations to degenerate the cats, but, but he was able to regenerate the cats in in um, four generations to the point where they were as physically, emotionally, and structurally perfect as the control cats. So, so in America, and this is a totally unfair question, but in America, where do you think most of us are generation-wise? If we extend the the metaphor to Pottinger's cats, well, I think the I think the children, and of course, you know, it's not as absolute because you know all the cats you know, was very carefully controlled. All the mm-hmm. cats were even given a whole food diet or partially processed or more processed or more processed. But I'd say, you know, basically, you know, the children today, those children born after the year 2000 and uh, who are now, you know, uh, young adults um, or uh, uh, not quite young adults, but they'd be, you know, as, you know, 12, 13, they've just come through their own slow growth period. Mm-hmm. 
I'd say they're pretty much third generation. You know, yeah. they all got narrowed faces. They all they all wear braces. They've, you know, I mean, look at the stats. How many uh, boys are uh, diagnosed with ADHD? Mm-hmm. The rate of autism is going through the roof. And, and then you look at these constant uh, problems. And how how many kids are so mal socialized? They can't even really attend public schools. So a lot of the homeschooling today. Some some of it's for personal choice. I'm not. Uh, denigrating homeschooling. I think it sure. can be a great idea. But a lot of times it's because the kids can't appropriately socialize. So I'd say we're pretty close to third generation. And, yeah. um, you know, I think, you know, the, the consequences, people can't even grasp the consequences. So we're going through this whole debate now about Obamacare, you know, should should we be providing health care? Should we not be providing health care? It's not even an issue. The, the real matter of the fact is that healthcare is so expensive and people are so sick that nobody can afford to pay for it. People yeah. can't afford to pay it on their own and people can't afford, we, our government, our pr- productivity isn't enough to pay for it. So yeah. we have to change, you know, our health because our the healthcare costs are burying us as a country. I mean, they, they it's one of the reasons General Motors went bankrupt. They they could no longer sustain mm-hmm. the cost of health care for their employees and their and their retirees. And you're seeing that that more and more. Yeah. And it's such a different way to think about all this. So a lot of people, when they first get started eating, according to Paleo, Ancestral, Weston A. Price, they're just like, wow, real food is expensive. I don't think I can do this. Which, if uh, you're comparing it to food at Walmart, I can see how you would come to that conclusion. But if you include the price of your medications, the, the price of mm-hmm. your doctor visits, the, the price of all the things that are going to happen to you for the next few decades and all the things that are going to happen to your children. I mean, the, the, the costs yeah. of health care, if that's included in your lifestyle, which I think it should be, yeah, all of a sudden you're, you're comparing dramatically different things. Like, So oh, if yeah. you look at before I started eating this way, I went to the doctor and I got sick all the time. And I was taking many medications because my doctor said that I had to because of these genetic issues that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, Skip ahead to to now, I I literally have not been to the doctor except to get blood work done from time to time just because I want to keep track of that myself in like three years. And so if you look at no matter how much much money you spend on eggs and Mm -hmm. organic veggies and at the farmer's market and everything else, that isn't even close to the amount of money that even someone in their 20s like me would have been spending at at the medical establishment over that course of time. So I think that's a really good point. Including those things in the same category um, is is a good way to reframe this whole dietary change. It's it's really critical because, um, well, unfortunately, I'm in Washington State and, and last week, you know, Proposition 522, uh, which would have caused, uh, mandated the labeling of genetic foods was defeated because the food companies, uh, Monsanto, Cargill, DuPont, and the Grocers Association put in like 20 some million dollars to the three or four million dollars that was raised by people who, who just want to know what's in their food. So the, uh, uh, that cheap food is uh, very profitable for big food, but it's very, very expensive for us. And right. Michael Pollan in his book, um, I, think I, I think I got these figures right. He said that in, in 1950s, we spent 18% of our budget on food and 5% of our budget on healthcare. Right. And today we spend 9% of our budget on cheap processed, you know, industrial food, which is only half the price. Mm-hmm. But now we spend uh, 19% of our 
funds on healthcare. Yeah. So you're either going to spend it on the food and stay healthy, and by mm -hmm. the way, you get food that tastes better, that makes you you know makes you feel better, and that gives you vitality. So you either spend it on the food and then save it on healthcare, or you or you save it on the food and you spend it on healthcare. But only an only an idiot would consciously make that choice. Oh, I'll eat cheap food and then I'll just uh, you know take hypertensive medications and uh, glucophage and you know inject myself with insulin and you know uh, take statin drugs. You know with the savings. You know like who yeah. would make such a crazy uh, choice? But that is actually the choice that that people are making. Yeah, absolutely, so when, and. Uh, I really take joy in in going to the farmers market every week and giving cash to farmers. Like there's something that's very different than like going to the doctor's office and giving cash to mm -hmm. a doctor. Not that that's I right. mean there's some great doctors out there and they deserve every cent that they yeah. get, but there are a lot of doctors who who I think a lot of people would agree wouldn't really match up with that description. Um so when it comes right. to what do you choose to spend money on? What are you choosing to support? That's a really interesting dichotomy between those two things. And I can tell yeah. you, spending my money on on truffle butter and blood sausage and mm -hmm. You're duck making me hungry. Pastured <laughs> eggs. I mean, it's yeah. it's amazing. And these people are shiny eyed. You can see the health of the farmers you're you're buying this stuff from, which you always uh, or you can't always see uh, in the in the doctor's office, unfortunately. Yeah, I know when you go when you go into a hospital, you know, it's the sickest sickest people you ever will see it. Not just the people that are there, but the people that are working there. And, Absolutely. And the food that they feed them in the hospitals is crazy. And, and good food's not really that expensive. You know, um, so I've been quite involved in this movement. And, you know, one of the things I've done is started the Nutritional Therapy Association and created a whole new a class of natural healthcare practitioners called uh, NTPs or nutritional therapy practitioners. And one of my early graduates, we did some videos on her and she sh showed, and she's a low income person. You know, she was raising three children on her own and uh, on a nurse's pay and stuff. And so, you know, obviously finances were a problem, mm -hmm. but she showed how you could take a chicken, you know, an organic chicken that, that, you know, cost 10 bucks. Sounds like a lot for a chicken, but these are big chickens that were raised on a local farm by the farmer that we knew and how you could feed a family of four, you know, for essentially a week on a $10 chicken. Wow. Well, was it go to McDonald's? Was it cost to go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac, a shake and some fries, you know? Yeah. It costs about 10 bucks and it, and it totally denigrates your health. Yeah. People say, well, it's, uh, I don't have the time, you know, I'm so busy, I don't have the time to cook. But even that, you know, is um, not a legitimate uh, answer. But there's a lot of really healthy things that you can make yourself for a fraction of what it costs to get cheap, sick, you know, uh, fast food. So, so it's all just excuses. And mm -hmm. I think uh, for the most part, I think that once people um, well, I guess that's both of our kind of callings is educating people. Once people really get it, that you can take control, you can bring your food purchases back to a local sustainable model, and you can enjoy the food more. It's going to taste better. It's going to make you feel better. And it's going to uh, support uh, your local economy. And it's just a win-win-win situation. Or you can go you know, to um, McDonald's or Jack in the Box and you can get you know, genetically modified buns with, you know, uh, beef that's uh, f been feed feedlot raised with antibiotics and, and um, you know, ketchup that's full of high fructose corn syrup. And, and um, you know, you, you really do pay a lot for that in so, yeah. so many ways. So, um, you know, I don't, I remember, you know, before I got into this field, 
I used to, you know, I uh, was addicted to fast food too, you know, and I mm-hmm. remember going into McDonald's and thinking, oh man, I love the smell of those French fries. <laughs> and, uh, but really, um, the only reason I go to McDonald's now is I'm driving down the freeway and I have to go to the bathroom. You know, that's the only, yeah. only legitimate service McDonald's plays in America today is providing restrooms that are relatively clean. <laughs> but you walk in there and the smell of that rancid grief almost, almost makes you puke. You know, once yeah. you're, once you're healthy, you really realize that that's, that's really not good food. So. That's so true, isn't it? That the same things that used to, uh, appeal to me. I'm just thinking actually of, we used to go to, to fairs growing up and, oh, you know, right. There's the fair food, and which is just notorious with those little carts that have been uh, clattering around with the same vat of grease that they've been using probably for 12 years. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, I remember, uh, fa- fast food and, and fair food used to smell so good, but if I go back now, which I still do, you know, or, or I might, you know, take a rest stop at one of those those places, so you get that the wafting of that chemically mm-hmm. rancid, salty mm-hmm. smell of of fast food yep. and what used to make me salivate now makes me a little bit nauseous. And I think mm-hmm. that really, it's hard to explain if you haven't experienced it. But if you if you it get is. away from that stuff for a few months and you just focus on eating real food, I promise that'll happen to you too. And you it want really it. Has. You want it. It sounds bad, but you want it to happen to yourself because then yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you have such an appreciation for the quality of food. And your body, I mean, your body knows. If, if you get out of your body's way and let it... If you follow that natural intelligence, if you're eating real food, your body right. knows in the same way that, you know, a dog in a lot of cases will know that something has been, you know, mm-hmm. messed with a little bit. Sometimes, I mean, they'll fall for it too, but yeah. there's this intelligence there where if something looks good, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it's good for you. That's right. When I'm uh, teaching my classes, one of the things I talk about is that all lower animals have the sense to only eat food. So, for example, you know, margarine, which is not food, mm-hmm. you know, that, that a cat won't eat it, you know, rats won't eat it, flies won't eat it, you know. So, if you take a stick of margarine, which is this highly processed, you know, um, hydrogenated vegetable oils that are really poisonous and put it on a windowsill, and then you take a stick of butter and put it right next to it, the butter will become moldy, you know, flies will come on it, you know, if the, if the cat can get to it when it's still fresh, it'll eat it, et cetera, et cetera. But nothing will touch the margarine mm-hmm. because they all are picking their foods based on their instinctual uh, knowledge. And, and so and we have within us that same instinct, which but we exploit in the nutritional therapist classes where we do what's called lingual neural testing. But what we've done is we've replaced our instinctual ability to choose our food with with our intellect. So mm-hmm. now we don't we don't choose based on what our body's telling us. We choose based on what our mind's telling us. Mm-hmm. And so so we we make these bad decisions. You know, we eat margarine. That's why I tell everybody that uh, no lower animal, only humans and stupid dogs eat margarine. <laughs> you know, because because there's because there's some dogs that if you eat it, they will eat it because that's that's just what they do. You know, yeah. they, they too have lost their uh, ability to to differentiate, but uh, no cats, no other animals will eat eat margarine except for us and stupid dogs. You know, yeah. smart dogs won't smart dogs won't <laughs> even eat it. You know, so. it was a few months back we put out uh, a picture that I, I don't even know where we found it, but there was a picture of butter 
and a picture of margarine. Maybe you've seen it and it's just looking at what happens over the course of the weeks and the butter, like you said, there are all these ants that have basically annihilated the stick of butter and then the stick of margarine, there are like a couple of dead ants on it and it's perfectly intact. And that's all, that's that's all that's happened. It's, it's shocking. Now, can we touch upon, I'd love to hear you uh, talk about great, what precisely happens when a food is processed? What's going on there? Why is it bad? Well, I mean, there's so many different types of processing. There's there's types of our ancestral ways of processing food, like mm-hmm. fermenting and drying and stuff. They can not only can preserve the integrity of the food, but they, in some cases, like um, uh, like uh, uh, culturing vegetables or uh, things like that, can actually enhance the quality of the food. Mm-hmm. But you know, everything in uh, modern food has really become about uh, shelf life and profitability so they they use the cheapest ingredients as they do everything they can to make it so that it won't won't spoil and the one uh, universal thing about spoilage is that something can only spoil if it has the vitality to support a microbial uh, organism so mm-hmm. it can't if, 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 if it's not if it won't support the life of a bacteria or yeast then it can't spoil so so highly refined sugar you know sugar uh, so, so sugar. If you take a piece of sugar cane, you know, and juice it, and you leave that juice out, it will spoil because it's full of vitamins and minerals. It's got things like chromium and B vitamins in it, and it will sustain life. But if you completely refine that, you know, it won't sustain life. And you know, a pound of sugar, you know, will last almost forever. You know, uh, ant, with exception of ants, almost nothing will. And the same is true with flour. I mean, the reason that we have white flour is because when when we invented, you know, these processes for milling our grains in mass quantity, you know, and so now we had the ability to, to mill them very cheaply. But if you left the, the uh, germ and the, the outer layer in the germ, then they would have a propensity to turn rancid and spoil very quickly. But when mm-hmm. you turn it into white flour, it'll last, you know, it'll last, last for years. So the same, this whole um, processed oil thing, uh, shows we're making progress. It's very slow, but, you know, uh, margarine and the hydrogen oils have been around for 85 years. And this week, just this very last week, after 85 years, the federal government and in their infinite non-wisdom has finally decided that these are toxic and they shouldn't be in the food supply. So we now know definitively, you know, how long it takes the federal government, uh, the people who are supposed to protect our food, how long it takes them to figure out that a food is toxic and is killing people. And that's about 85 years. So if anybody's <laughs> relying on the government to, you know, protect our food supply, you know, you're going to be waiting, uh, you know, three or four generations, you know, yeah. so... And, then, and that's and the then, key word, three to four generations, right? Yeah, that's right. And and most of the in the places where they're getting rid of the hydrogenated oils, now they're they're replacing it with things that are um, probably as bad or maybe even worse. These interesterified fats may be worse than hydrogenated fats for all the same reasons. But mm-hmm. don't worry, you know, within uh, eighty to eighty-five years, the federal government should figure out that and then and then uh, make the food makers take that out of uh, our food supply. So, you know, we just have to we have to take control. You can't you cannot trust the government to guide you. They're They've been highly uh, manipulated by big food and big agriculture, and uh, people need to start using some common sense, kind of get back to you know our local sustainable food sources. Yeah, and it's so fascinating. I was actually forwarded this movie many, many times before actually watching it for the first time last night by listeners of the show actually sent me a bunch of notes. They're just like, you need to watch this. Soylent Green for oh, being, yeah. you know, coming out in the, in the 70s is incredibly prophetic you know what they said 40 years ago about like 
this fake food made out of soy being sold to everyone as the new health food and marketed in the, all these crazy ways. Well, I, I mean, my my lord, that's exactly what happened. I know it's crazy, huh? I was uh, got a little skit about like, so how do, how do most things end up in our food supplies? Usually there's some waste product that nobody knows what the hell to do with. And, yeah. and they're looking at this little story about how we got, um, you know, hydrogenated cottonseed oil in our food supply. And I go, mm-hmm. well, probably started somewhere where there was a couple of executives from a major cotton gin, you know, and they're looking at these huge piles of uh, cotton seeds, you know, stacking up outside the factory. And they're going, well, what the hell are we going to do with all this cotton seed? And one of them looks at the other one and goes, I don't know, you know, the cows won't eat it. They're too smart. And they go, well, what we could do is we could we could turn it into oil, hydrogenate it, and tell people it's a health food. We'll tell them it's a polyunsaturated fat that's good for them. I'm sure they'll buy it, you know, and <laughs> unfortunately, that's true, you know, so... Likewise, with the the reason we have some soy does have one redeeming quality, and that's that it puts nitrogen into the soil, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that farmers started growing so much of it. But you know, there was not much demand in our culture for soy, and so they took this um, probably at the very best under the best of circumstances, a, a barely acceptable or mediocre food, and then and and they highly processed it, and tried to put it in every imaginable you know, uh, concoction, you know, and tell us that it's good for us. And, and most, I'm not, I'm not a complete soy hater, you know, I mean, I think, I think there are people, you know, uh, if you're Asian and your ancestors have been eating soy for 10,000 years and it's properly prepared, which of course in our culture, it never is, you know, and fermented, you know, it can be a healthy food, but Mm -hmm. for somebody of Northern European descent and particularly the way it's prepared, you know, it just really doesn't have any place in our diet. So, yeah. Absolutely. Now, one thing that's that's really interesting, and and you touched upon this earlier, was the the Ornish camp and the the kind of low fat ideology about all of this is deeply intertwined with the whole epigenetics uh, concept. And a lot of the studies have been done by folks who kind of lean in that direction. So, could you comment a little bit on the differences between, say, that the Weston A. Price approach and then the the low fat approach? Sure. Well, you know, um, we could spend an hour just talking about variations in diet. And um, so in Ornish's uh, program, he never really uh, just took a dietary approach. He always took a multifaceted approach, which mm-hmm. I'm not uh, denigrating, but he took a, a very low-fat diet. And then he he took uh, uh, appropriate exercise, uh, uh, meditation, and uh, uh, social interaction. He put all those things together. And he did show, there's no doubt about it, that he could reverse heart disease and that he could uh, stop or reverse the progression of slow-moving cancers. But having said that, I don't really agree with his with his diet. That There's redeeming parts to his diet. One of the redeeming parts is that there was almost no processed foods in it. And so I think... Um, Here's my my general words of wisdom is any diet that doesn't have processed food, whether it's low fat or high food, low fat or high fat, Mm -hmm. is healthier than any diet that does contain processed foods, whether it's low fat or high fat. So one of the things that always ends up happening with, uh, you know, vegetarian studies is they'll take a group of vegetarians, like say maybe Seventh-day Adventists or something, who are eating whole nutritious vegetarian foods, and then they'll compare it against a, an American diet where they're eating, you know, a, you know, feedlot red meat, and they're eating hydrogenated oils, and they're eating refined grains, and, and um, you know, so it's the, it's the standard American diet. And so they're comparing a low-fat or vegetarian 
non-processed food diet with a high-fat processed food diet, and it's not a fair comparison. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think there's also a distinction that people need to make is the difference between a diet that will sustain a person over the long period, a healthy lifetime diet, and a therapeutic diet. Right. Because, Because we do know that there are times when you know, uh, diets like a macrobiotic diet or a, a vegan diet can be therapeutic for some people for a period of time, mm-hmm. but that does not mean that it's the diet for that person for their life. Mm-hmm. So, have you ever had um, Anne Louise Gittleman on on your show? She's uh, I haven't. Interest- she's always uh, up for. Um, Talking about these things too, and Anne Louise and I are pretty good friends. Cool. So um, you know, she wrote uh, Beyond Pritikin and the Fat mm-hmm. Flesh Diet and a number yeah. of other things. But anyway, I was talking to I was talking to her and her partner James, and uh, James was a Texas rancher and had gotten uh, cancer. I believe it was colon cancer, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. swear to it. But anyway, he rejected the uh, idea of chemo and radiation, and he went on a macrobiotic diet. And lo and behold, you know, he he cured his cancer. So what happens when people when people uh, make a dietary change like that and it works for them and they feel better that that's good but they make the mistake of thinking well it worked for me during this period of time so mm-hmm. this is the diet I should I should maintain for the rest of my life and that's what what James did but what he found was that um, though he cured his cancer over time he started to lose his vitality and he finally came to the conclusion that that the diet that was right for him when he had cancer was not the diet that would, so he went back to a, a more balanced diet, a non-macrobiotic diet, that, but, the, but a, a diet that was nutritious, whole food, a nutrient-dense, whole food, balanced diet mm-hmm. that included um, a meat and was uh, low glycemic and um, he got his vitality back. So he cured his cancer and he has his vitality. So I think that's what, what we all want to uh, look for is the diet that will sustain us over the long period. That's such and, a good point. And I also wonder too, the difference between when you talk about obviously the the cats who ate a processed diet encountered damage, but was that because they were eating foods that damaged them, or was it because they weren't eating enough of nutritious foods that nourished them? Well, I think it's probably both. You right. Know? So if looking at the cats, just to, more clarity on the cats, the, the most famous study was one where he where they, they all got a base of raw meat and cod liver oil, you know, so obviously a very good base diet. And then mm-hmm. the, the other half of their diet was either raw milk, pasteurized milk, condensed milk, or sweetened and condensed milk. And what you can see is each one of those is more processed, processed with heat, you know, processed with heat and condensation and processed with heat and sugar added. I always say, my gosh, you know, if the, the PETA people got hold of Pottinger today, you know, they'd, they'd rip them, you know, because yeah. that's a cruel and horrible thing to do to a cat to give it milk that's not only condensed but also it's processed with sugar added who would do that to a poor innocent cat yeah but then again that's exactly what we're doing to our children right you know, yeah, have a, a really good point. breakfast of sugar frosted cocoa puffs and low-fat milk and uh you know they're basically getting the worst of the punter diet so mm-hmm. it really is both of those things you know it, it doesn't have the nutrients that they need to sustain themselves you know the the nutrients are denigrated by the heat and mm-hmm. then uh, then you add things like 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 sugar that actually you know uh, disrupt the normal um, uh, glycemic control mechanisms of the body. So it's it's just a horrible combination. And it is the the diet in America, you know, so pro- highly processed with lots of sugar added. That's what most people are eating, even even though they don't necessarily realize that. Yeah, I ask because it's such an interesting distinction, right? Most people assume that if you have success with with a diet uh, or if you go vegan, paleo, 
uh, South Beach, whatever, that's right. because of the diet that you're getting better. When in many cases, I think people tend to overlook, it's that they're not pummeling their bodies with toxins and, and bad right. food that's damaging them anymore. So even if they right. ate, if they ate nothing or some of these, you know, having great success with, with juice fasts or eating almost nothing for a long period of time. It's not because, you know, like cayenne and maple syrup and lemon juice are great for you in and of themselves necessarily. It's because you're not eating Taco Bell anymore. Right. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a big part of it. Yeah. That's one thing. I, so, so for, I know I've, I've been um, criticized being a bit harsh on, on vegans, but I don't, I don't mean to be, but I know, you know, people are desperately seeking health, but here's, here's what I see happen so often is that people are eating this highly processed standard American diet and it's wrecking them. Mm -hmm. And so they go on a vegan diet and it's clean. Hopefully, you know, if there's uh, where I went to the Evergreen State College for uh, several years, uh, not that long ago. And uh, there was a lot of junk food vegans. So that's really the worst yeah. alternative of all. Yeah. But for the most part, when, when you, the raw food vegan movement, they're eating uh, raw whole foods. And for most of them, they, they get their vitality back. They lose weight, their complexion clears up, you know, their, their sex drive re returns and they just generally feel better, mm -hmm. you know, their allergies clear up, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so they go, I found it, you know, I found, I found my, my place in the universe, you know, I'm a vegan, I'm a raw food vegan. And they, as, as the time goes on though, that diet eventually turns on them because it, they do tend to be very high glycemic, you know. Mm. So I, one of my uh, friends, she was uh, uh, actually a student, and she got on the vegan thing, and she said, well, "I feel I feel great." She said, "Well, you know, you've always you know Pottinger, you've already advocated raw food diet." And I said, "Well, you know, I do advocate a raw food diet, but I said, you know, drink some raw milk and eat some raw eggs and have some raw liver and stuff like that, along with yeah, the pecans and the pumpkin and the you know uh, all the other raw things you're doing are wonderful, but you need to balance it based on your your genetics as Northern European descended person with these other raw foods. Then mm -hmm. I'm all for it. Yeah. But what what I saw actually with with her, I didn't mention her name, so I. So I don't want to be uh, critical, but what happened was she felt better, but then eventually her blood sugar became dysregulated. You know, she started to get moody and then she started to gain weight again. And, and unfortunately, what a lot of times people do is they go, well, gosh, you know, I'm vegan isn't work for me, but I'm just not being a good enough vegan. So they just try harder and harder to be a better vegan. And, yeah. and that, but having said that, you know, I, I uh, recently had a student in one of the classes I just graduated, and um, he's been a vegan for 13, 14 years, and it completely saved him from, and he's doing fine, you know. So, mm -hmm. so he just seems to be the individual for whom, but he's very, very diligent about it. He eats no processed foods. He's very careful about getting the protein that he needs, et cetera. And so, so really, I, I feel like I'm really qualified to tell how somebody's doing because I, you know, what I teach is these uh, physiological tests that measure, you know, how people are doing in life. And he's doing great. Yeah. And so our agreement was, so I'll support his veganism as long as his veganism is supporting him. And we talked about some of the things that I'd observed. And he agreed that when, when he, if he saw those things happening, that he would shift his diet, start, start including animal products again, because his goal was to be healthy. He wasn't on a religious quest, you know, he was, he was on a health quest. And so I, I think that's uh, fair, you know. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I know uh, your main thing is uh, paleo, but but paleo. So I'll probably get some uh, bad blogs on this one, but paleo doesn't work for everybody. There mm -hmm. are a group of people for whom good, uh, properly prepared grains can be a healthy part of their diet. Now, uh, 
not most people, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but some people. But are you are you familiar with um, Gary Nabham's work? He wrote a book called Why Some Like It Hot, and uh, no, a little bit, yeah. Okay, he kind of helped shift my thinking a little bit on that as as a person who was. Um, become a bit inflexible, you know, am I thinking about what could be healthy for people? I mean, yeah. I kind of come over to got to get the grains out, you know, what you need for breakfast is you need protein, you know, and, and, uh, but I had observed, you know, that for some people it was wonderful, but for some people it, it wasn't right. one particular, there was a couple, that, uh, he was a medical practitioner and she was his nutritionist. And, um, you know, he had some huge blood sugars, issues going on, man. I got him eating three eggs and, you know, some, just, just a little bit of cultured veggies and, you know, some other protein. And he was, he was like a new man, yeah. but for her, it didn't work. It wasn't until she added some high quality, you know, grains back in that she really felt, you know, her, her very best again. Yeah. You know? So and anyway, Nabham's book, he really does, um, you know, explain that phenomena that, that we do adapt over time to our environment, the food that's available in our environment. And so, you know, just like uh, an Inuit person, mm -hmm. you know, can eat a diet that's, you know, 80%, 80, 85% fat and thrive. You know, if you were to take, uh, you know, an Asian person who's from uh, or a Great Barrier Reef Islander, for example, who, who mostly were eating um, fruits and um, uh, low-fat fish, mm -hmm. you know, and you switch those diets, neither one of them would thrive because they've evolved for tens of thousands of years on those types of diets. Yeah. But that, you know, some people are like, um, in my book, I talk about, um, and quoting Nabham actually, you know, that if you take um, indigenous Australian people, Aborigines, and try and give them milk that like 78% of them have no ability to digest lactose as adults. Right. But if you, if you take a Fulani herdsman from Africa and they've been consuming dairy for, you know, uh, thousands of years themselves, still 28% of them are still lactose intolerant. Wow. But if you take the Swedish population, his ancestors have been consuming dairy products for, you know, some, somewhere in the vicinity of 12,000 years now. Only 2% of them don't have the ability to digest lactose. Yeah. So, so we do adapt. We adapt slowly. But the other thing Nabham says very clearly is that whenever we make a major shift in our diet, there's horrible consequences in the short term. Mm -hmm. And that it takes many, many generations to adapt. And so, you know, whatever, I mean, I think the biggest argument for a uh, paleo. And I'm very sympathetic to my diet is primarily, you know, a, a paleo diet. But part of the problem is that our grains have been so right. uh, denigrated, you know, by, through hybridization and now genetic modification that they are not the grains that we're adapted to. Exactly. You know, so, so yeah. And so one of the reasons that, uh, that I identify with paleo isn't necessarily because I'm 100% paleo. Anyone who listens to the show knows that very well. It's more because if you're telling people that you eat in a particular way, then, then saying paleo works because mm -hmm. if you're going to get grains today, it is so complicated to try to not only source them, but treat them correctly in the way that they're supposed to be fermented and, and, and cooked or not cooked or sprouted and all of this gets really, really complicated. So it's easier just to say, you know, stick with a paleo diet at the beginning. We can sort out all of these intricacies a little bit later. So I right. think in, in terms of like a diet that's 
something that people could identify with. It's one that, that works fairly well and it's a good launching pad into this whole very, it's, you know, to be honest, it's a very complicated lifestyle. It takes a little while to get a handle on all the ins yeah. and outs, but it's, it's the best thing you can do for your health. And with that, we're, yeah. we're just about out of time, Gray, but um, why don't you tell folks where they can find you and, and what you're working on? Okay. Well, um, one of my biggest projects is the Nutritional Therapy Association. So we started a, a profession, nutritional therapy practitioners. And so we train in conjunction with community colleges and, and our own venues around the country and now soon around the world, uh, uh, practitioners called nutritional therapy practitioners and now nutritional therapy consultants. And uh, so you can get more information on that whole movement at nutritionaltherapy.com. And um, I do have, um, I think my book has been well received, but it's probably a bit technical for a lot of people. So I do have plans in the not too distant future to kind of do a Reader's Digest version of, <laughs> of uh, Pottinger's Prophecy for the, as, as like all my friends who are into natural health and all the practitioners, they love the book. But yeah. as, as far as I know, I don't have actually one relative that's made it through it, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know those big words, you know, so, <laughs> okay. I know a lot of my listeners are nerdy like me, so I'm sure that they're going to love it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so they can, you can also go to my website, pottingersprophecy.com, and order the book there, an e-version or a hard copy. And uh, I know I think people that are into it uh, love it, and there are some uh, great great lessons in the book. And uh, So anyway, uh, thanks, Abel, for having me. That's been fun. I could thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I would yeah, love to we, talk to you soon again about epigenetics and all these other like intricacies of, of living this way, like I was talking about before. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on. You bet. You bet. Take care. You too. Hey, this is Abel, and I have a quick question for you. Do you want to get in the best shape of your life without giving up your favorite foods? Don't miss your opportunity to get the new Fat Burning Chef e-cookbook featuring more than 200 delicious recipes from the top paleo chefs in the world. You can get it now for a huge discount at fatburningchef.com. You can type it in from any device. Keep on listening for the details. Meet Jane. Jane knows she's supposed to eat right, but it's been one heck of a long day and she's short on time to cook a healthy, delicious dinner. Jane knows she can get lean by choking down reheated chicken breast and steamed broccoli six times a day for the next three months, but that doesn't sound like very much fun. Fortunately, Jane's in luck because her friend just sent her a collection of over 150 quick and easy recipes that just so happen to keep the pounds off. It's called the Fat Burning Chef. And through the magic of the interwebs, this handy, interactive, digital cookbook beams straight to you instantly. And since it lives on your iPhone, iPad, Droid, computer, or other gizmo, you'll never be without quick and easy fat-burning meals. But it's not just about mouth-watering recipes. We want to change the world with real food. When you grab the Fat-Burning Chef, you get another copy as a free gift to share with your friends and family. So if you're short on time and want to know what's for dinner tonight, head on over to fatburningchef.com and we'll fix you right up. Bon appetit, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fat Burning Man. If you liked it, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, the podcast app, or wherever else you might be listening to or watching this show. Got a second? 
please leave me a quick review on iTunes. I always love hearing from you. And if you think someone else might like and benefit from this free show, please take a second to share it with a friend or with a family member. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at FatBurnMan and Facebook by typing in Abel James or FatBurningMan. Drop me a line anytime. Did you know that I've recorded over 150 episodes of Fat Burning Man, winning four awards in independent media and hitting number one in more than eight countries? And here's some more good news. You can download and listen to every single episode for free. All you have to do is type in fatburningman.com. I'll give you a second to type it in, fatburningman.com. And you'll get all the show notes in video and audio versions for all the past episodes of Fat Burning Man. Better yet, enter your best email at fatburningman.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I'll even send you a quick start guide to start burning fat right now and a few of our ridiculously tasty recipes as a special thanks for signing up. Once again, just go to fatburningman.com right now, enter your best email to get your free fat burning download straight to your inbox and make sure that you never miss a show again. This is Abel James signing off. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.